DW, Living Planet. Today, we're going to drop into the natural habitat of the axolotl, those spongy, quirky-looking amphibians, to meet some of their trusted defenders and find out why this species is key to keeping Mexico City cool. And later in the show, we visit the Po Delta in Italy to hear about the CO2-capturing benefits of clam fishing and France, where mowers are slowly being replaced by sheep. All that coming up on Living Planet. Long, long ago, what is now metropolitan Mexico City was a vast lake. The Aztecs built their capital city on two islands in the middle of the lake and extended the area with small artificial islands called chinampas. But eventually, after the Spanish took over, colonizers drained the lake. And all that's left today are the canals of Xochimilco, a small but critical wetland ecosystem. And it's here that a smiley, feathery-gilled, world-famous amphibian calls home. Or at least it used to, before it was pushed out. These days, you're probably more used to seeing axolotls in fish tanks. But scientists and local farmers want to bring the axolotl back into its natural habitat. And they say that an old agricultural practice could be key to its survival. And its survival could be key to regulating the city's temperature. Lulu Ralda sent this report. Benicho and I are making our way down a canal near the protected wetland area of Xochimilco in southeastern Mexico City. Here, people get around in canoes or trajineras, a local wooden boat. Awejotes, a native willow tree, line the canal, serving as a kind of fence for big floating gardens called chinampas. It's hard to believe that we are surrounded by one of the largest cities in the world here. It feels like we're in the middle of nowhere. Dionisio Eslava Sandoval, or Don Nicho, as everyone calls him, is a farmer and a community leader from Xochimilco. For over two decades, he has been campaigning to protect and restore this wetland ecosystem. Part of the objective, the heart of the project, is the conservation of an organism that is very symbolic, the ajolotl. The Mexican ajolotl is one of 17 species of ajolotl in Mexico, but it is by far the most iconic. It has its own national holiday, February 1st, and the award-winning 50-peso bill is dedicated to it. You have probably seen it online, on TikTok, in Minecraft, in a meme, or perhaps even in real life, as someone's pet. It is a cute, quirky-looking, soft-skinned amphibian. It can regrow its own gills, limbs, heart, and brain. And it is a native species in the lakes of the Valley of Mexico, which are now a series of canals in Mexico City. These wetlands are the last remnants of the lake ecosystem that once flourished here, before Spanish settlers drained the lakes to make way for the new city. They are a UNESCO World Heritage Site and are listed as a Ramsar Wetland of International Importance. 
But in recent years, thanks to water pollution, the introduction of invasive fish species and urban expansion, the canals of Xochimilco have become unlivable for most native species. And the ajolotl has been declared critically endangered in the wild. Scientists say the loss of this species poses massive knock-on effects for Mexico City and beyond. But more on that in a moment. First, I went to meet some ajolotls in person. Don Nicho is taking me on a short tour of what they call the biological station, a community center and lab where they have been breeding and studying the Mexican ajolotl since the early 2000s. Water tanks of different sizes are organized by stages, from eggs to sexually mature adults. The eggs are transparent. You can see the tiny ajolotl fetuses inside, which already have the same shape as the adults. Most of the adult ones are shades of dark gray, but some are pastel pink or light yellow. Según la leyenda, se cuenta que al inicio de los tiempos, while he shows me around, Donicho tells me the legend of Xolot, god of light and darkness, of transformations and monstrosities. According to legend, at the beginning of time, the gods had to sacrifice themselves to give life to all the cosmos. But the god Sholot refused. And so, in order to escape, he took on multiple sacred forms, including corn, the fruit of mamey, the Mexican dog, the Xolosquintle, and eventually, the Mexican ajolotl, known as the water monster. What's interesting is what the legend foretold. When Xolotl is found by his executioners, they condemn him and say, we will no longer sacrifice you. In this form, you will remain forever. But the day that your body of water becomes polluted, you and humanity will disappear. The reason I had to go to a research center to see an ajolotl is because, as far as scientists are aware, no ajolotls live in the main canals of Xochimilco anymore. Ignacio Morales Salas is the professor in charge of the aquarium at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, where they also breed Mexican ajolotls. He told me that once he tried growing a few of them in water samples from the Xochimilco canals. They didn't survive more than a few months, he said. Imagine that you're frying eggs or that your skin has contact with very hot oil and blisters appear. More or less, that was what appeared on the body of the ajalotl. That's how polluted the water is in Xochimilco, which is not just a problem for the native species, but for the whole population of Mexico City. Diana Vázquez-Mendoza is a biologist at the same university as Ignacio, specializing in wetland restoration and ajolotl protection. She told me that the fact that the ajolotl is in critical danger means the whole wetland ecosystem is endangered too. The ajolotl is an amphibian that is very sensitive to the environmental changes due to the type of skin they have, so it also serves as an indicator of the quality of the ecosystem, or in this case, of the quality of the water. Multiple studies from Diana's lab at the university have shown 
that if nothing is done to conserve this wetland, the zone of Xochimilco, where the ajolotl is native to, will be lost by 2057. And that loss, scientists predict, could lead to a temperature increase of 2.5 degrees Celsius in the metropolitan area of Mexico City. Generally, when we speak of human well-being, we almost always focus on health issues or medicine. But quality of life also has to do with how we live in our city and how we relate to that environment. In this case, losing Xochimilco would reduce the quality of life of all of us who live in the city. So, is there anything that can be done to save the ajolotl from extinction? Back in Xochimilco, Donicho and I are heading into the Chinampa zone and the protected wetland area to look at a solution to the Mexican ajolotl's decline. Xochimilco is historically a farming community. It was here around 2,000 years ago that one of the most productive and sustainable urban agriculture methods was developed the chinampas, or floating gardens, built using layers of vegetation, dirt, and mud. Most are around 6 to 10 meters wide and 100 to 200 meters long. In just one year, each chinampa can produce around 5 tons of food, and a productive hectare can capture up to 113 tons of carbon dioxide, while also serving as a biofilter for the canals. But ever since the wholesale market priced out smallholder farmers in the 1980s, the chinampas don't operate like they used to. Now, nearly 95% sit there untouched. The abandonment of the chinamperia, along with increasing urbanization and the introduction of exotic fish, have all played a role in the decline of this ecological community. Local farmers and university researchers like Don Nicho and Diana believe that reviving the chinampas goes hand in hand with saving Xochimilco and the Mexican ajolotl. The chinampas provide a shelter for the ajolotls to protect them from exotic fish species. In turn, a healthy population of ajolotls is also linked to good water quality, which is important for healthy crops. So how do you preserve an ecosystem? You put it to work, using the knowledge and practices of the community. This doesn't only help preserve the ashalotl, it preserves forms of cultivating the land. It preserves native seeds and plants and all of the aquatic wildlife that depends on the wetland for its survival. But this is easier said than done. Diana explains that currently, in Mexico, only 0.4% of the federal budget goes to environmental issues. And when it comes to preserving native species like the Mexican ajolotl, the government tends to prioritize museums over ecosystem protection. We have these aquariums, these museums, these places where they have ajolotl hatcheries, and people think that having ajolotls in a fish tank is going to help the conservation of the species. But in the end, the species will always be dependent on the conservation of its habitat. So community members like Don Nicho and scientists like herself have to find their own means of funding their projects on top of their day-to-day -day jobs and research. This meeting is being recorded. I reached out to the government secretary of environment, 
to find out what action they're taking to protect the Ajolotl. Bueno, ahí se está grabando. Este, I eventually got on a Zoom call with Mexico City's General Director of Zoos and Wildlife Conservation, Fernando Gualcil. He spoke about Amphibium, the newly opened Ajolotl Museum and Center for the Conservation of Amphibians in Mexico City's zoo. And he told me that the city's wetland ecosystem is home to approximately 11% of biodiversity in Mexico and 2% of the world's biodiversity. But he could not give me a clear answer about what the government is doing to restore this wetland, Xochimilco, so that reintroduction can be possible in the future. This, Diana says, is just one of the ways in which Mexico is failing to preserve its natural spaces. There's a problem in Mexican policy regarding the conservation of biodiversity, land management, and the management of natural resources. We are lacking environmental policy in Mexico. By the end of our tour, Don Nicho tells me that, with or without government aid, he is sure of his role in preserving the Mexican ajolotl and their home, Xochimilco, through the Chinamperia. We all have a right and an obligation to make sure that all of this isn't lost for future generations. If we complain now, imagine the kids who are 10 years old now in another 10 years. What will they see? From our trenches, we must begin that interior renovation to stop complaining and start acting. We must start turning these problems into opportunities for growth and integration, of course. For DW, I'm Lulu Ralda in Mexico City. This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shields. From soft-skinned amphibians that can regrow their limbs, we're now shifting our focus to some hard-shelled organisms. But we're staying underwater, this time in the delta of one of Italy's most important rivers, the Po River, where clams are increasingly the top export for fisherfolk. And because of the special powers concealed in their shells clams have a surprising ability to store carbon dioxide, which makes this farming practice pretty good for the environment. Gustav Hofer went to check it out, and Ben Ressler brings us this piece. It's an icy 7 o'clock in the morning, and the Italian town of Gioro and the harbour here on the Po Delta is draped in thick fog. Boats in the distance appear like dark smudges against the misty backdrop. For fisherman Vardis Paisanti, that doesn't make setting out on his day's journey any easier. He steers his boat slowly through the cold waters, while squinting through his glasses, trying to decipher what's in front of him. You try to navigate by orienting yourself to certain landmarks, but on mornings like this, when the fog, which we call Caligo, is so thick, it makes navigating difficult, very difficult. His father fished the Adriatic before him, but today Vardis harvests clams called vongole. 
Where and how much they can net changes every day. In the evening, we get a message from the cooperative telling us in what zone we can fish, when we can set out and when we have to return, and how much we can bring ashore. They glide for half an hour through the silent lagoon. Then suddenly, the quiet ends. Countless fisherboats appear from the fog like ghosts. 1,500 men and women work the Joro Lagoon. Vares finally reaches his assigned zone. It's not deep, but it's cold. As he wades through the hip-deep water wearing wetsuit overalls and giant blue rubber gloves, he swings his arms back and forth, smacking his hands against the sides of his body. It's the only way to warm up your hands when you're cold, he says. Fishermen stand in the water, helping each other drag nets and metal contraptions across the lagoon bed. Clam fishing is more like farming the seabed than traditional fishing. The Joro fishermen harvest almost 14,000 tons of clams each year. Today, the cooperative has informed them that they are permitted to harvest 30 kilograms each, Vardis says. They suck the clams out of the sand with a special device. The men stand in the six degrees cold water and lift up a fishing net, which is then hoisted onto one of the men's small fishing vessels. Once collected, the clams are then rinsed and sorted into containers on the boats. The water temperature day is just right for winter. But in recent years, the temperature has stayed around 11 degrees Celsius. Climate change is having an obvious effect on the Po Delta. We observe the effects of climate change here when the sea level changes, when the Scirocco wind blows or during the phases of the moon. We also see the effect of warming when we find fish, mollusk and crab species that we've never seen here before. That's why clam farming is important, Vardis says. It's one form of fishing that can actually help protect the climate. The shells are made of calcium carbonate, which is captured carbon dioxide, he explains. Back on land, not far from the Po Delta at the University of Ferreira, Professor Elena Tamburini is busy at work in one of the university's laboratories. She puts on some disposable rubber gloves and removes a test tube from the centrifuge. The ecologist has authored a study on the impact of mussels on the climate. As they grow, mollusks form a shell, and that captures CO2. If I harvest a kilo of clams, the CO2 emitted for their commercial use is much less than the CO2 captured by the clam shells as they grow. That's the surprising thing. The Joro fishers now farm a dozen clam species over an area of 10 square kilometers. Seven years ago, Vardis and the other fishers launched another climate-friendly project, farming oysters from the Mediterranean, using the tides. Standing in the lagoon, hundreds of round fishing nets dangle along thick ropes right above the water. We are the only oyster producers in Italy. Now it's low tide and these baskets with the young oysters are hanging in the air and the sun. When the tide comes in, this entire zone will be flooded. Oh, okay. 
The fishers call their oysters golden joro and sell them to top chefs all over Italy. But Varis loves one thing in particular about his work. It's that sense of freedom. You follow the ebb and flow of the tides and the phases of the moon. You're part of this beautiful world, our world, the Po Delta. Preserving this world and ensuring its future, that's what Vadis and the fishes of the Joro are committed to. Are you worried about the state of our planet? Me too. I'm Neil, host of the On the Green Fence podcast, and to me it's clear we need to change. The solutions are out there, but where do we start? Join me for a deep dive into the green transformation and what it means for me, for you, for the planet. On the Green Fence, wherever you get your podcasts. Listeners, it's time to chuck out your Roundup, your lawnmower, your whippersnipper, your shears and whatever else is in your vegetation-eating toolkit. Because there's a new grass trimming machine in town. And not only is it all natural, it's pretty quiet. Apart from the occasional... Yeah, it's sheep. Which are popping up in some unexpected places in France, as farmers have begun to offer the woolly mammals services as all-natural lawnmowers. From Euro Disney to vineyards in Bordeaux, they're hard at work keeping the vegetation under control. But do we really want sheep eating the grass? John Lawrenson has this story. Thomas de Bastos, a sheep farmer, calls to a herd of his sheep at his family farm Ferme du Puy, near the town of Dreux in France's Centre region. My grandfather and my mother were sheep breeders. They've raised sheep for the meat, but when I took over the farm two years ago, I wanted to diversify, and we started eco-grazing, as we call it. Eco-grazing, where sheep are used to maintain the green spaces around company premises and public buildings, has now become the Ferme du Puy's main activity. They have over 300 sheep, keeping the grass down across almost 50 sites. Avant de before we bring the sheep to a site, we take a look at the soil and the flora and decide how many sheep we are going to put to graze that surface area. It's usually close to one sheep for a thousand square meters, ten sheep per hectare. As for the cost, it starts at 70 euros a month for smaller sites, with two or three sheep rising up to seven or eight thousand euros a year for the biggest ones. In any case, it's about the same, even a little less, than the cost of maintaining those same green spaces mechanically. The advantages of getting sheep rather than mechanical lawnmowers to do the job are, says Bastos, multiple. 
Euh, on va déjà partir d'un avantage écologique, c'est-à-dire qu'on n'utilise plus de, de... The Because we're not using machines, there's a reduction in CO2 emissions. It's also less noise pollution. As you can hear, we're surrounded by sheep, but they don't make any noise, unlike machines. Having sheep on your land also creates a link between people. People tend to group together and chat where there are animals. There's also an educational aspect, the link between humans and animals, which allows us to center ourselves, to have a better idea who we are as humans. And there's another practical aspect. Sheep and goats have no problem with steep slopes, so they can go to work on grassy areas that mechanical lawnmowers can't reach. Ils ont pas de contraintes topographiques, c'est-à-dire qu'ils peuvent entretenir des terrains très pentus sans avoir de problèmes pour pour grimper dessus. Bassos's sheep are employed to maintain the green spaces at nursing homes, schools, town halls and above all, private companies. A few kilometers away from the Ferme du Puy, at a large logistics company called Valley Transport, lorries rumble out of the depot while, not far away, sheep nibble peacefully on the spring grass and flowers. Sheep were removed from the grassy verges alongside the Paris Ring Road because it was deemed bad for their health to be close to such a busy thoroughfare. Here, they are a good way away. They have a hut if they want to shelter from the sun or the rain. Bastos comes every couple of weeks to check everything's going all right, especially in winter when the grass is thin on the ground and he has to feed them. At another nearby company, a beer and wine distribution firm called Sévin, site manager Maxime Gibert has had a couple of sheep, plus goats in summertime, keeping the vegetation in order around his depot for the past 18 months. They have, he says, made a big impact. Ah oui, oui, bon, honnêtement. Oh yes, they make a big difference. I remember when I arrived here, the grass came up to our knees. There was a good 20 to 25 centimeters. They may not look like it, but these sheep have good appetites. For us, using sheep instead of men with machines means we get an ecological certification that benefits us economically. But also we are pleased to provide work for a local farm. And it's nice for the people who work here. We have barbecues in summer and it's nice having the sheep around. The little goats are really sweet. But not everyone sees eco-grazing in such a positive light. Astrid Prévost works for the French vegetarian association AVF. She's skeptical about the environmental benefits. The first thing we have to ask ourselves is eco-grazing compared to what? If it's eco-grazing compared to having parking lots, of course it's far better. But to bring the sheep on the on the place of eco grazing it requires transportation and well the sheep obviously are not the the animal who produce uh, the more uh, like uh, co2 or uh, methane like uh, like cows or like this but still you need to feed the animals so this has also an impact on the on the environment and on the planet the best solution, says Prévost, is to let the vegetation grow wild. The best thing to do is to let nature be its own regulator. And so in many places, we probably don't need any grazing at all. Many, many farmers say that um, that it's uh, it's good because it um, it can help like the landscapes and like this. But actually, the nature doesn't need us to, to make this. 
I think for this, we also need to review maybe what we consider like beautiful and uh, what uh, what we would like as as landscape. So I think it's something that maybe will come progressively. Back at the Ferme du Puy, Thomas de Bastos can at least reassure Astrid Prévost on one point. His sheep never end up as cutlets. They live, he says, peaceful lives and die of old age. The only thing they ask them to do is to nibble the grass. John Lawrence and DW, Dreux, France. And that's all for this week's Living Planet. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more Living Planet, you can check us out on any and all podcast platforms where you can also subscribe for a new episode in your feed every week. Thanks also to Gerd Georgi and Vibke Tegdmeier in the studio this week. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. Don't drink the milk. Weird name for a podcast, right? But it will all make sense, I promise. And no, it's not a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. Their arguments of homeopathy are based on, like, sand, and the sand was pouring through my fingers. I'm Rachel Stewart, and for this new podcast from DW, I'm travelling around Europe, tracing the backstories of objects, ideas and movements that you know well. But maybe you never really stopped to think how these things got to you. Condoms are known as French letters in the 19th century. Syphilis is the French disease, but in France it's the Italian disease. Join us to follow the strange journeys of these everyday things and see how they change shape as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts.